The following podcast is based on actual X-Files cases. Do you want to know the future? Come in. Do you want to know what lies ahead? I knew it was you. They call me Stupendous Yappy. I know why you're here. For years, I have entertained audiences with my psychic abilities. You remember the first time you foresaw someone's death? 1959. What happened in 1959? Buddy Holly's plane crashed. I have been consulted by Hollywood stars, police departments, even presidents. Now, I can be your personal psychic consultant. The big bopper was not supposed to be on the plane with Buddy Holly. He won the seat from somebody else by flipping a coin for it. Do you want to know if you will get that promotion? Do you want to know if your marriage will be successful? Do you want to know where you will meet your one true love? Do you want to know how you're going to die? They call me at 1-900-555-GAP. So to hear tomorrow's secrets today, just pick it up. Yeah, yes, I would. I know you will. I can see your future. No, you don't. Mr. Yappy, read this thought. Social man. Welcome back to X-Files Truth. Today's file is Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose. X-File number classified. The plot. In a store, Clyde Bruckman purchases a paper and a lottery ticket, then leaves. In the street, he almost bumps into an inconspicuous man who heads to a fortune teller. During the palm reading, the inconspicuous man attacks her and kills her. A few days later, a different fortune teller has been found with her eyes and entrails removed. Mulder and Scully arrive at the scene of the murder to help the local cops, who have recruited the help of a psychic, the eccentric, stupendous Yappy. Although the psychic delivers extremely vague clues, such as the killer may or may not have facial hair, the cops are impressed. However, both Scully and Mulder are skeptical especially after Yappy diagnoses that Mulder, not Scully, is the skeptic in the room who's interfering with his psychic energy. Meanwhile, after Bruckman takes the trash out for his neighbor, he discovers the body of the fortune teller outside in his dumpster. When interviewed by Mulder and Scully, he reveals details about the crime that he could not have known from the media accounts, which causes Mulder to believe that Bruckman has the psychic ability to predict death. According to the police report, Mr. Ruckman, you didn't touch the body after you found her. Why would I want to? But she reported that she found a body with its eyes cut out. The body was face down. If you didn't move it, how did you know the eyes had been removed? Well, they had been, hadn't they? Then what are you complaining about? How had the eyes been cut out? By a piece of crystal ball of all cockamamie things. We did find some crystal shards on the body. How do you know it was from a crystal ball? Well, it just, it just figures. I mean, if a guy goes to kill a fortune teller, uh, he's obviously going to assault her with her own crystal ball and uh, use a shattered piece as a sort of lance. Isn't he? Mr. Bruckman, how much have you heard about the recent slayings in town? Just that some nut is going around killing fortune tellers and... Ripping their eyes and entrails out. How did you know about the entrails? That information hasn't been released to the press. I never read the papers. Too depressing. 
Mulder insists that Bruckman join them in a visit to the other crime scene. Why do I do this to myself? Come in. I knew it was you. I know why you're here. You're here because you found that woman's body where I told you it would be. And now you're convinced I have some sort of psychic power. So while your skeptical lady partner is off performing an autopsy, you came here to ask my help catching this serial murderer. Everything you said is correct. Oh, it's you. I won't help you. Please leave. But you do admit to having this gift. Oh, I got it all right. The only problem is it's non-returnable. Mr. Brookman, you possess an ability that not only has staggering implications upon physics and human consciousness, but it's one which most people, myself included, would be envious of. You seem to treat it with disdain. Do you want to know how you're going to die? Yeah, yes, I would. No, you don't. Thanks to information from Bruckman, another body is soon found in a nearby lake. Mulder, Scully, and Bruckman go to the woods where they discover another corpse. Bruckman explains how he gained his ability following the death of the Big Bopper in a plane crash. You remember the first time you foresaw someone's death? 1959. What happened in 1959? Buddy Holly's plane crashed. You prognosticated Buddy Holly's death? Oh, God, no. Why would I want to do that? But I did have a ticket to see him perform the next night. Actually, I was a bigger fan of the Big Bopper than Buddy Holly. Chantilly Lace, that was the song. I'm not following. The Big Bopper was not supposed to be on the plane with Buddy Holly. He won the seat from somebody else by flipping a coin for it. I'm still not following. Imagine all the things that had to occur, not only in his life, but in everybody else's. We'll arrange it so that on that particular night, the Big Bopper would be in a position to live or die depending on a flipping coin. I became so obsessed with that idea that I gradually became capable of seeing the specifics of everybody's death. Bruckman foresees Mulder's death getting his throat slit by the killer after stepping in a pie in a kitchen. However, he tells Mulder he's not able to see what happens. Well, I, I can't tell you where this is from, but, but the killer's going to kill more people before you catch him. Can you see him physically yet? No. No, just more insight into his character, which I know you hate. He thinks he's psychic. Is he? I hope not. I've seen some of the things he's seen. Like what? What does he see? Hey! You. He sees you. Trying to catch him. Where does this take place? In a kitchen. You're looking around for someone. He's behind you now, but you don't know it. And he's stalking towards you and... Oh, God. What? What do you see? He's got a knife. It's got blood on it. Well, why don't I see him? What am I doing? You're looking down. You stepped in a pie that's fallen to the floor. The killer comes up to you and 
coconut cream. What? The pie. Coconut cream. Or is it lemon meringue? I don't know. It's not sure. It's, it's hazy. Whatever. Please continue. As you're looking down, he comes up with a knife and banana cream. Definitely banana cream. All right, I'm looking down at this banana cream pie, and then what? He sees himself coming up to you from behind. And? And what does he see? Oh. Nothing. The visions of a madman. While Scully does not believe in Bruckman's power, the two develop a friendship. Bruckman asks Scully why she's not interested in knowing how she will die. Scully finally breaks down and lets him tell her how she'll die, to which Bruckman joyfully but cryptically replies, You don't. Bruckman later tells Scully that they will end up in bed together in a very special moment neither of them will forget. This reinforces her skepticism. Bruckman gets a note from the killer saying he's going to die. In response, the agents bring Bruckman to a hotel where a detective named Javez guards him. As the agents leave, they bump into a bellhop who's delivering food to Bruckman's room. It turns out that the bellhop is actually the murderer. He kills Javez and prepares to do the same to Bruckman. Meanwhile, Scully realizes that the bellhop is the murderer and they rush back to the hotel. Mulder chases the killer to the basement and the scene plays out as described in Bruckman's earlier premonition but when the killer attacks him Mulder is able to fend off the attack until Scully arrives and shoots him. What Bruckman had seen was the dying killer's last thoughts not Mulder's death. Mulder and Scully return to Bruckman's apartment to find that Bruckman has committed suicide by tying a plastic bag around his head. Scully sits on Bruckman's bed holding his hand deeply moved, just as he had predicted. That night, Scully sees a commercial for the stupendous Yappy on TV, causing her to throw her phone at the television. Do you want to know the future? Do you want to know what lies ahead? They call me, the stupendous Yappy. For years, I have entertained audiences with my psychic abilities. I have been consulted by Hollywood stars, police departments, even presidents. Now. I can be your personal psychic consultant. Do you want to know if you will get that promotion? Do you want to know if your marriage will be successful? Do you want to know where you will make your one true love? Then call me at 1-900-555-YAP. Remember, the future is close at hand, and so is your phone. So to hear tomorrow's secrets today, just pick it up. I know you will. I can see your future. And now for my field report for Clyde Bruckman's final repose. This episode was better than I remembered. We find out that Scully doesn't die, which is kind of an ongoing theme through the X-Files uh, here and there. And we'll also have an episode that's a little bit more dedicated to that in an upcoming season. Now it's a really good episode called Tythonus. We also think we find out how Mulder dies, but it winds up being Clyde. Although Mulder still could wind up dying the same way, you never know. And we also find out where Scully gets her Pomeranian. I have two of those, they're really great uh, dogs. 
So uh, we'll also find out what the uh, dog's name is in upcoming episodes. He's, he sticks around for a little bit, so that's kind of cool. For the Mythometer, this one's definitely a monster of the week. There's no Mythark references, although we do have the subplot of Scully not dying, so it's kind of a little storyline that runs on, but it's still a monster of the week because that's not really part of the main Mythark. The Sequelizer... I'd probably give this one a low potential for a sequel because Clyde Brockman is dead, even though we still have that subplot of uh, Scully not dying. For my 1 to 10 rating, compared to other Monster of the Weeks, I would probably give this one like a 7.5. It's pretty good. Uh, compared to all X-Files episodes, though, it'd probably be more like a 6.5, something like that. Compared to all the shows on TV, though, it's probably 8.5. So pending any further evidence, this case... Clyde Bruckman's final repose is filed, closed. Now let's hand it off to Chelsea down in the chem lab and see what she has for the chemistry between Mulder and Scully for Clyde Bruckman's final repose. Hello, baby! Yeah, this is the Big Bopper speaking. <laughs> oh, you sweet thing. Do I want? Will I want? Oh, baby, you know what I like. Chantilly lakes and a pretty face and a Kim Lab analysis. Hey everyone, Agent Chelsea here. This month's episode is Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose. This episode has so many fun scenes to go over, it was tough to only pick a few. The truth is, if I could, I would quote this entire episode, so I apologize if I mention a lot of the dialogue. This episode is very heavily focused on Clyde Bruckman, but he is with Mulder and Scully for most of the episodes, so we get a lot of scenes with them together. But first, I'd like to start towards the beginning. At the crime scene, the detectives are discussing someone who they're bringing onto the case to help out. He's a little unorthodox and very spooky. We all think this is Mulder, right? Well, Mulder walks in and the detective asks, Who the hell are you? Oh, yeah, I forgot you were coming. <laughs> so, who is this guy the detectives were talking about? Well, Yappy, of course. Now, he goes around the room and gives his spiel about his profile and the murderer. But, whoops, someone is blocking his negative energy. Alright, who's the skeptic in the room? He first walks up to Scully, and we all think it's her, right? Nope. Yappy makes a quick turn to Mulder. This scene is all kinds of unpredictable. Yappy asks Mulder to leave, and Scully leans in and says, I can't take you anywhere. With Mulder out of the room, Yappy can perform his show. After he leaves, the detectives describe the profile he gave of the killer. White male, 17 to 34, with or without a beard, maybe a tattoo, and impotent. Well, in the words of Scully, might as well go home, Mulder, this case is as good as solved. I love this whole bit because we think of our characters in one way sometimes that we forget that they can bend a little. Yes, Scully is the true skeptic of the duo. But Mulder can be one too if he believes it's all crap. Maybe Mulder's not as gullible as everyone makes him out to be. 
Plus, the whole thing is just hilarious. We meet Clyde Bruckman, an insurance salesman, and Mulder eventually discovers that he's a psychic, although Mr. Bruckman himself doesn't really believe it. He just knows how and when people are going to die. Mr. Bruckman lets them know where the bodies are when they are killed and tries to help Mulder and Scully by giving insight to the character, to which Scully gets a little frustrated about. She wants a physical description. Mulder keeps giving Mr. Bruckman items to read. He does discover a torn piece of cloth as Mulder's New York Knicks t-shirt, a throwback to Beyond the Sea, but Mulder says it's a miss. Was that just a joke, or was that really not his shirt? We'll never know. There are some more funny moments like the opening scene, where Mr. Bruckman gives a speech that sounds like he's talking to Mulder, but he looks up and says, Oh, it's you. I always wondered who he was talking to. As we know, Mr. Bruckman has the ability to know how people are going to die. So, of course, we need to find out how our favorite characters are going to die. Bruckman doesn't say it flat out that Mulder is going to die this way, but he definitely hints to it. You know, there are worse ways to go, but I can't think of a more undignified way than autoerotic asphyxiation. Whoa, Mulder definitely reacts to this. He knows it's about him. Bruckman and Scully have a very nice scene together. He talks about their last moment together, how they will end up in bed, with her holding his hand and looking at him with such compassion. To which Scully responds, there are hits and there are misses, and then there are misses. Well, nonetheless, Scully can't help but ask, all right, how do I die? You don't. Wow. Very interesting answer there. Quite possibly the biggest foreshadowing moment I've seen. Of course, we'll get to that more later on in the show. The one scene that Mr. Bruckman can spell out is the killer chasing Mulder. Into a kitchen where he steps on a pie. What kind of pie? Well, you'll have to watch the episode to find that out. We finally see this towards the end. Mulder and Scully run into a bellhop on the way out to a crime scene. Scully later puts it together that the bellhop is the killer, but we've already seen that when the bellhop brings in a tray for Mr. Bruckman and recognizes him. He runs off after killing the detective who was watching Mr. Bruckman, and we see the scene where Mulder chases after the bellhop. Instead of him slitting Mulder's throat, Scully shoots him just in time. Phew. Cool, but now where's Mr. Bruckman? They go to his house, and we see another scene that he predicted. Mr. Bruckman is in his bed, where he has obviously killed himself. Scully grabs his hand and gives him that look of compassion. Oh, and she gets a dog. And that's what I got for you. This episode gets a high rating for me. I would say definitely like a 4.9 out of 5. These episodes are truly my favorites. A good story and lots of laughs, plus a lot of Mulder and Scully. Darren Morgan really does write some of my favorite episodes. I like the dark ones, but I love the fact that the X-Files can be funny. What did you all think? Are you a fan of these types of episodes as well, or are these episodes not your favorite? Either way, let us know. 
Email us your thoughts at xfilestruth at live.com. You know what I like. Chantilly lace and a pretty face. On it tail, hanging down. A wiggle in the walk and a giggle in the tall. Lord, make the world go round. There ain't nothing in the world like a big-eyed girl. to make me act so fun. Spend my money. Make me feel real loose. Like a long-necked goose and like a girl. Counterintelligence. Inside information. This is Agent Stone with Counterintelligence with X 3.4 Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose. Written by Darren Morgan, directed by David Nutter. You're a fortune teller. You should have seen this coming. Scully and Mulder are called into the investigation of a series of murders where the victims were all psychics of some sort. A tea leaf reader, tarot card reader, and palm reader are all the apparent victims of a serial killer. The local police have brought in the stupendous Yappy, a well-known flamboyant TV psychic detective that Mulder finds laughable. But he does come across one Clyde Bruckman, a depressive insurance salesman who may be a genuine, albeit reluctant, psychic. While Scully is appropriately skeptical, Mulder realizes that Bruckman can only see one thing, how people will die. This was the second episode written by Darren Morgan after Humbug, which he claims was a terrible experience for him, so this time around, instead of writing a comedy, he decided to plan something much more serious and very depressing. He figured that if a psychic could know the future, Theoretically, he would be able to see everybody's eventual future, which is their deaths, and that you wouldn't be able to live with that. You would go insane and you'd kill yourself. The idea of psychic ability as a curse also influenced Morgan's creation of the killer. He gave him some psychic ability, but not enough to really figure anything out. In the script, the character was called the puppet because he wanted the idea that this guy felt like a puppet. He could see his future, but he wasn't in control of it. Morgan read dozens of books on psychics, and particularly psychic detectives, or people who claim to put their extra sense to good use by helping the police solve crimes. Morgan was able to toe the middle ground by contrasting Bruckman with his genuine gift-slash-curse with the stupendous Yappy, a shameless charlatan. Darren Morgan did win the Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Writing in a Drama Series for this episode. His main source was a book called Psychic Sleuths, for which 11 researchers spent a year investigating well-known psychics. Many psychic sleuths are inveterate self-promoters. After all, it isn't the lawmen who leak their uncanny insights to the media. How many police agencies are eager to spread the word that a psychic with a mystic vision was able to crack a case they couldn't solve? And only successful psychic input gets reported. For every miraculous spot-on psychic deduction, there are perhaps thousands of useless paranormally generated clues placing the correct ones well into the realms of random chance. Nonetheless, there have been cases through the years in which a psychic has provided such detailed and accurate information that even the most determined skeptic would have to reconsider. Some of the most famous names of the paranormal patrol, if you will, include Gerard Croset, Peter Herkos, Noreen Rainier, and Nella Jones. Now, 
A psychic detective is defined as a person who investigates crimes by using their claimed paranormal psychic abilities. A number of people claim that they have psychic abilities that have allowed them to assist police in solving kidnapping and murder cases or locating a corpse. Police departments generally state that they do not keep records regarding such activity. Abilities frequently claimed by psychic detectives include postcognition, or the paranormal perception of the past, psychometry, the information physically gained from objects, telepathy, dowsing, and remote viewing. In murder cases, psychic detectives will often claim to communicate with the spirits of the murder victims. As skeptics point out, however, not one of the alleged paranormal powers has been proved to exist. To assess the then-growing claims of psychic crime solving, the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, now the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, created a task force of investigators headed by Joe Nickel, Ph.D., a former magician, mentalist, and investigator for the world-famous Pinkerton Detective Agency. The result was a book introduced and edited by Nickel titled Psychic Sleuths, ESP and Sensational Cases, and containing a final analysis of claims by psychologist James Alcock. Psychic Sleuths, still perhaps the only truly skeptical book-length treatment of the subject, demonstrated that claims of psychic crime-solving repeatedly failed scrutiny. A major ploy the claimants used was a technique called retrofiting, or after-the-fact matching. For example, the psychic offers several vague clues, such as I see water, I'm getting the number seven, and so on, which are invariably of little use to police. However, after the facts become known, the psychic attempts to fit them to the earlier offerings. For instance, a corpse may have been near a stream, pond, lake, or other body water, and the number seven might be made to seem a fit by pointing out that the location was seven miles out of town, or off Highway 7, 27, something like that. Retrofiting has duped even seasoned homicide detectives. Most of the cases investigated for psychic sleuths depend on retrofiting, the apparent use of cold reading, and other ploys such as exaggeration. In light of erstwhile best cases that are sometimes touted, psychic sleuths offer a remarkable example. After a nurse went missing in Los Angeles in 1980, an ordinary woman claimed to have a vision of the nurse's murdered body. Not only did the unlikely psychic pinpoint the area on a map, but she actually arrived at the location of the body ahead of police. Nickel observes, however, that Smith failed a lie detector test, gave conflicting accounts of her vision, and could have learned the location indirectly. As it happened, the killers were eventually caught because one of them had boasted about the crime in his neighborhood. A number of scientific tests have been conducted on psychic detectives using control groups to try to establish any psychic ability relating to crime solving. One of the earliest was carried out by Dutch police officer Philippus Brink in 1960. He conducted a one-year-long study of psychics and their abilities, but found no evidence of any abilities. Another study was conducted in 1982, where evidence from four crimes was given to three groups, psychic detectives, students, and police detectives. The clues related to four crimes, two crimes that had been solved, and two that had been not. The study found no difference between the three groups' inability to indicate what crimes had been committed to be looking for the evidence. Some flaws in the scientific method was apparent in these two tests. A further test was conducted in 1997, this test focusing on improving on the scientific methods used in the previous tests. This study used two groups, one consisting of three students from the University of Hertfordshire, the other group consisting of three psychics, 
two psychic detectives and another psychic who had a media profile and had been endorsed by police due to his abilities. The two groups were shown three objects associated with three serious crimes. They then advocated theories, but once again, no difference was found in terms of the accuracy between the two groups. Psychologists, researchers, and other authors have posited a number of possible explanations for the belief that some can provide valuable crime information from psychic abilities. The possible explanations include confirmation bias, wishful thinking, and retrofiting. The act of reinterpreting vague and nebulous statements made by psychic detectives is also referred to as the multiple out. Taking advantage of these cognitive limitations is the practice of cold reading, which creates the illusion of knowing specific information. Additionally, police detectives and other authors suggest the psychic detectives appear successful due to making common sense or high probability predictions such as finding bodies at dump sites or near water. The media plays an important role in making it appear that psychics have solved the case of the missing person. Headlines make sensational claims, but when the details are known, the media statements do not always hold up. As in the case of the Long Island serial killer, the psychic said the body would be found in a shallow grave near water and a sign with a G in it would be nearby. Despite the vagueness of this claim, the body was not in a shallow grave, water is everywhere in Long Island, and no sign with a G was nearby, the New York Post stated that the psychic nailed it. More surprising than the psychic's failure is the fact that this information was described as an amazing success on over 70,000 websites without anyone realizing that she was completely wrong. Many prominent police cases often involving missing persons have received the attention of alleged psychics. Following the disappearance of Elizabeth Smart on June 5, 2002, the police received as many as 9,000 tips from self-proclaimed psychics and others crediting visions and dreams as their source. Responding to these tips took many police hours, according to Salt Lake City Police Chief Lieutenant Chris Burbank, yet Elizabeth Smart's father, Ed Smart, concluded that, quote, the family didn't get any valuable information from psychics. Smart was located by observant witnesses who recognized her abductor from a police photograph. No psychic was ever credited with finding Elizabeth Smart. These are just two of a countless number of cases, many of which have played out in a similar fashion. While police departments claim that they do not seek out or use psychics to solve crimes, they must follow up on all credible tips. If police do not refute this theory, then many in the public continue to believe that psychics are secretly employed by law enforcement. If the police state that they do not use psychics, then psychics claim that the police do not want to share the credit and are just covering up. A 1993 survey of police departments in the 50 largest cities in the United States revealed that a third of them had accepted predictions from psychic detectives in the past, although only seven departments treated such information any differently to information from an ordinary source. No police department reported any instances of a psychic investigator providing information that was more helpful than other information received during the course of a case. A follow-up study looking at small and medium-sized cities in the United States found that psychics were called upon by the police departments of those cities even less frequently than large cities. A former senior investigator for the FBI has stated that psychics may be used as a last resort, as an investigative tool with caution, for providing clues not directly admissible in the court of law, such as a criminal's character or the location of dead bodies. Finally, the use of psychics may simply reduce anxiety and fill the emotional needs of individuals who must be experiencing great stress. I'd say that this case is open, 
So, the final word on Clyde Bruckman's final repose, if the future is written, then why bother doing anything? Well, that'll be the day when you say goodbye, yes, that'll be the day when you make me cry. What's going on out there? What's out there for Clyde Bruckman's final repose? I've got a few reviews for you today. First one coming from Music and Meaning. After watching this a few more times, I think I have learned to appreciate this episode more than when I first saw it. This one has a really strange feel to it. It is Darren Morgan's brainchild, and I wasn't used to his style. He combines the less attractive with some humor, so that the gory stuff isn't so bad. Plenty of playful Mulder and Scullyisms, and I love the other clever-slash-humorous ideas. Yappy, banana cream pie, and how can I forget the scene when Scully came out of the service elevator and shot the bellboy. I didn't think I would ever hear myself say this about a violent act, such as shooting someone, but way to go, Scully. It was for Mulder, after all. And just one nitpick, I really didn't like the dog. I think it was simply because of what it did to its original owner. Well, I definitely have to agree with that. I never really thought about Queequeg that way, uh, but yeah, that is kind of gross. I think these episodes kind of threw people off at first, especially because we got so used to the X-Files being one way that when Darren Morgan came in and wrote some funny episodes, it really just took people for a turn. But I think after a few times watching it, you can't help but just revel in its brilliance. Alright, next review comes from a blog called A Jerseyite in Exile. One day I'm going to write about how I love television as a medium for storytelling. But until then, I'll point to Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose as an example of what good television is. It is brilliant characterization, an unobtrusive plot, and a way to explore ideas without being heavy-handed. The ability to tell a story like this in 45 minutes seems to be a rarity in the overcrowded world of television. The writers who can pull it off, Vince Gilligan, Joss Whedon, Aaron Sorkin before Studio 60, Matthew Weiner, and more that I'm forgetting, deserve recognition and praise. Their shows have something to say while being entertaining. This is not an either-or situation. Shows should not be about something or entertaining. They need to be both, and Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose is very much both. This episode is a meditation on death that doesn't leave the viewer sobbing on the couch because it is the type of episode where the truth depth sneaks on you. Death is a heavy subject, but Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose walks through this central issue with a wonderful grace. It distracts you from the fun of the stupendous yappy the mystery of the serial killer targeting fortune tellers, and the wonderful dialogue of Bruckman. Only when the credits roll can the viewer realize how profound this hour of television really is. I think that this review just says it perfectly. You know, writers just do wonderful things on television. I think it's great when you can create an amazing story and amazing characters and just have some incredible dialogue all in 45 minutes. 
Some people can't do this in a two-hour movie, and we should just definitely praise those writers that can write incredible television episodes. Next review comes from Musings of an X-File. Now, when there's a funny episode and when there's a really dark episode, I love to go to Musings of an X-File because there's always tons of laughs. So please, please go check this blog out because if you're ever in need of a laugh, this blog is definitely going to get you that. And the verdict is... Bruckman may not have changed his own fate, one that it appears he was aware of from at least the beginning of the episode, and probably much earlier, but he did affect Mulder's destiny. Or did he? Whether or not the killer's visions were accurate or not, who can say, they had certainly come true up to that point, so I'm inclined to think Bruckman did some good. After all, that's not the way it was supposed to happen. But what about Bruckman? You'd think a suicide would put a damper on the whole thing, but somehow, poignant though it is, it isn't depressing the way it would read on paper. Does he kill himself out of obedience to fate? Or is it because his job is finished? He's done his good deed, and now there's no need for him to put himself through the torture of knowing the future anymore. Darren Morgan has an incredible ability to exceed the audience's expectations about what an X-File is by mocking those very expectations. He raises questions without giving us answers. Me? I'm not so sure that destiny and free will are conflicting concepts. Is it unreasonable to think that one exists inside the other? Or even better, because of the other? Like Humbug, you can take a deeper message from it if you want. Or my personal favorite, don't take anything from it, but just sit back and enjoy it. A+. Ah, definitely. I think (laughs) this episode poses so many philosophical questions, but yet you don't have to take it that deep if you don't want to. Really? Like she said, you can just sit back and enjoy it. And that is why this episode is incredible, at least in my opinion. All right. And that is what's out there for Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose. Character Profiles Profiles in Character This week's profile, Clyde Bruckman, as portrayed by Peter Boyle. The name of the character Clyde Bruckman is the same as that of the co-writer and co-director of the Buster Keaton silent classic, The General. He was an American writer and director of comedy films during the late silent era, as well as the early sound era of cinema. Bruckman collaborated with such comedians as Buster Keaton, W.C. Fields, Laurel and Hardy, The Three Stooges, Abbott and Costello, and Harold Lloyd. Bruckman, which is actually pronounced as Brookman, may be best known for his collaborations with Buster Keaton, as Brookman co-wrote several of Keaton's most popular films, including Our Hospitality, Sherlock Jr., The Navigator, Seven Chances, The Cameraman, and The General. Our Clyde Bruckman, in our featured episode, is introduced in the beginning of the episode, where he is seen in a liquor store reading predictions made by the stupendous Yappy in a newspaper article, skeptically criticizing each one. 
Confused by the unusual sounding name of an event that, according to Yappy, Buddy Holly will play at, Bruckman asks the store's proprietor what the word means, but the shopkeeper does not even know who Buddy Holly is. Bruckman orders several items from the shopkeeper, including the newspaper containing Yappy's predictions. According to Bruckman, he first gained his psychic abilities in 1959 following the plane crash that killed Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper. He was a fan of the Big Bopper and especially his song Chantilly Lace. Bruckman had a ticket to the concert the next day. Given the details of the Big Bopper's demise, the fact that the Big Bopper won his seat on the plane from flipping a coin, Bruckman became obsessed with the details of events leading to death and gradually became able to see everyone's death. Bruckman spent the next 36 years leading a normal, meager life in St. Paul, never capitalizing on his ability. He never attempted to stop the deaths based on the belief that the future was immutable. That ability may have led to the job of a life insurance salesman. In the middle of 1995, Bruckman sold a life insurance policy to Claude Dukenfield, the owner of the Uranus Unlimited Astrology Investment Firm. He saw Dukenfield's death at the hands of a murderer who called himself a puppet. Bruckman was unable to visualize the puppet's appearance and did not recognize him when he walked past him on September 16th. On September 19th, after taking out his neighbor Mrs. Lowe's garbage, Bruckman discovers the body of Madame Zelma, the dead fortune teller that had been being investigated by the local cops, as well as the stupendous Yappy, along with agents Mulder and Scully, and upon talking with Bruckman, who had revealed details about the murder that could not have been known from media accounts, they believed him to have the psychic ability to predict death. Mulder and Scully and Bruckman go to the woods, where they discover another corpse. Bruckman explains how he gained his ability following the death of the Big Bopper in a plane crash. Bruckman foresees Mulder's death, getting his throat slit by the killer after stepping in a pie in a kitchen. However, he tells Mulder he's not able to see what happens. While Scully does not believe in Bruckman's power, the two develop a fast friendship. Scully, meanwhile, continues to remain a skeptic. Bruckman gets a note from the killer saying he's going to die. The agents take Bruckman to a hotel room and after bumping into a bellhop who ends up killing the guard and prepares for Bruckman next, but Mulder and Scully soon realize that the bellhop is the murderer and they return to the hotel where Mulder chases the killer to the basement and the scene plays out as described in Bruckman's earlier premonition, but when the killer attacks him, Mulder is able to fend off the attack until Scully arrives and shoots him. What Bruckman had seen was the dying killer's last thoughts, not Mulder's death. Mulder and Scully return to Bruckman's apartment to find that Bruckman has committed suicide by tying a plastic bag around his head. Though seeing how he died through strangulation with a plastic bag, he could have meant himself when he said that he couldn't think of a less dignified death than autoerotic asphyxiation. Bruckman's cryptic prediction that Scully would not die was the inception of a lesser-known story arc that was originally supposed to reveal that Scully was immortal. The subplot, popular with fans on the internet, was verified by Frank Spotnitz. However, Spotnitz later admitted that this subplot was bookended by the sixth-season episode Tithonus, which showed Scully starting to die, only to have her come back, fulfilling Bruckman's prophecy. Spotnitz later called this ending very satisfying. The role of the title character Clyde Bruckman was originally written with Bob Newhart in mind, but was eventually cast with Peter Boyle. 
Chris Carter preferred to not cast well-known actors, but felt that Boyle was such a gifted character actor that he ignored that preference for this episode. Peter Boyle was born October 18, 1935, and died December 12, 2006. He is perhaps best remembered for his role as the monster in Mel Brooks' Young Frankenstein, or for his performance as Frank Baroni in the long-running comedy series Everybody Loves Raymond. But he can also be seen in Taxi Driver, The Santa Claus Trilogy, The Dream Team, Fist, Joe, and many more. Boyle's performance as Clyde Bruckman won him the Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Guest Actor in a Drama Series. Have you checked your email? I found these in my email this morning. And now, the female with the emails, Agent Chelsea. All right, you can let us know how you like the episode by sending us an email to xfilestruth at live.com. And this month, we actually did get an email from a listener named Angela. Hey, everyone, I've been listening to your podcast. The reopening the X-Files podcast with Agent Donald and doing yet another show rewatch. One right after the other. I've lost count of how many X-Files rewatches I've done over the years, but your podcast makes it even more fun and brings up both awesome memories and some awesome details I had temporarily forgotten. I have been a huge fan of the show since I was 12 years old in 1993, and oh my god, I can't believe it has been that long. Like Jillian Anders said in a recent interview, I also feel like I'm still 17 years old on some level. I love X-Files Truth, and you guys do a stellar job. I can't wait to completely catch up with all your podcast episodes. I first discovered it around this past Christmas, but then things got very busy and I fell out of a regular listening habit. I've picked it back up along with reopening the X-Files, and I've gotten as far as the fire episode as of this writing. I could probably write at least one entire book about what the X-Files means to me, but I'll save that for a later time. I will try to make the time to email you my podcast reactions when I can. Keep up the awesome work, Angela. Wow, thank you so much, Angela. I think it's incredible that you're doing another rewatch. Um, It's definitely something that you have to take seriously, and that's great that you've been a fan since the beginning. Um, Not too many of us we're lucky enough to be a fan since the beginning, but I'm glad you're listening to the podcast and you're probably, it's probably funny for you to listen to both podcasts at the same time since both Shadow and I have have like been on both of them, I guess. It's kind of interesting. And, uh, I hope you're enjoying it and please feel free to always email your thoughts. And I would definitely like to hear your story of how much X-Files means to you. So even if it's a long email, feel free to write it in and I can, uh, I can cut down some parts, but we'd love to hear it. So thank you so much for writing. You can also like our Facebook page, search X-Files Truth Podcast, like our page and check out our timeline. We don't do a new segment on the show anymore, but we do always post whenever there's X-Files news on our Facebook page. 
Also, you can leave us an iTunes review. There you can rate our podcast, let people know why they should listen, and it'll get others to listen as well. You can also leave a comment on our website, which is xfilestruth.com. You can leave a comment on basically any page you want, and there we have all the info that we mention in the show, including the songs that we play and the websites that we mention and out there and whatnot. So please check us out and let us know how you like the show. Talk to you all later. Time on X-Files Truth. An executed convict's enemy's list and his promise to come back from the grave to wreak revenge become the focal points of Mulder and Scully's investigation into the grisly murders at a southern prison. Okay, I hope you all enjoyed Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose. It was a fun episode. Uh, don't forget to drop us a note, xfilestruth at live.com. Swing by the website, xfilestruth.com, or leave us a review at iTunes. I hope you all had a happy Easter, and you might want to stick around for an Easter egg. And we will see you next time for The List. I made this 20th century box Agent Stone's promo for the list WWF style take one
Well, you know something mean, Gene? All you Hulkamaniacs out there, brother. All you X-File Toothamaniacs out there. Are gonna be treated because next week on X-Files Truth. An executed convict's enemies, brother. This list and his promise to come back from the grave. Revenge become the focal point of Mulder and Scully's investigation, brother, into the grisly murders at a southern prison. And what you gonna do, enemies? When the combined 24 inch pythons of Mulder and Scully run wild on you. Grizzly murders at a southern prison. 